Dr. Jonathan Chase. Wealthy, young, handsome. A man with the brightest of futures. A man with the darkest of pasts. From Africa's deepest recesses to the rarefied peaks of Tibet. Heir to his father's legacy and the world's darkest mysteries. My son, you must have faith and learn. This is not the end. This is the beginning. Jonathan Chase, master of the secrets that divide man from animal. Animal from man. Manimal. Searching my past for the things that I've seen. Is it my life or just something I dream? Resume. Noun. One. A summing up. Summary. Two. A brief written account of personal, educational, and professional qualifications and experience. October of 1984 began with Conan the Destroyer number one. It was more enjoyable than the movie for me, thanks to the apropos creative team of Michael Fleischer and John Buscema. That said, the movie sucked, as did compressing it into two issues, of which I only bought the one. I remember this was sitting prominently on the local 7-Eleven comic rack located below and to the right of the cash register. I suppose I recall it so vividly because of the coloring and the simple waist-up figure. A few years late, I got New Teen Titans number four, this being the deluxe Baxter edition. Big thanks to DC for taking one of their most popular books directly market only at a time when I'd never even seen a proper comic shop. My recollection is that I either had this issue or Christ on Infinite Earth number seven with me on the long bus ride to Colorado to visit my stepfather's family one time. I'd never taken a trip like that before, so the books and toys I had with me got a good workout whiling away the stationary hours. Trigon impressed the hell out of me, and it was some of George Perez's finest art. The story had a real sense of horror at a world gone completely wrong, intensified by the externalization of the angsty young hero's inner turmoil. Unfortunately, I had picked up the other issue in the arc another few years later, past the proper age for them to be effective. Aside from Perez's failed washes, the art was even better than in the early issues. But Marv Wolfman's story started slow, sagged, and whimpered at the end. This is not how I wanted their pairing as a creative team to resolve, and I found I wanted Wolfman even less on full plots with other artists. G.I. Joe, a real American hero number 31, had a sweet cover by the usually bad Frank Springer, enhanced by Klaus Janssen Inks. Given the high expectation that came from regular covers by the likes of Golden and Zack to keep this book a hot seller, Springer enormously upped his game to compete, seemingly so much that he skipped doing the interiors. I enjoyed the battle action under guest artist Rod Wiggum more than usual, and since they had the same inker, I know Wiggum deserves the credit. It amused me that this book was the title to pick up in my hood, more so than even the X-Men. We were all big fans, yet the stories failed to seep into my memory and are now virtual blind spots in my recollection of these times. Anyone who slags on Kitty Pride and Wolverine must have forgotten the part where Ogun brainwashed Kitty into a ninja assassin retroactively from birth, including her performing kung fu as a toddler then raised her as his own daughter through magic. That was rad. In number three, we had the reverse phallic symbolism of Wolverine skewered in his man womb on Kitty's katana blade. Gender equality, the high hard way. I was really regretting missing number one because by this point, I was totally sucked into the miniseries. I didn't read Robotech Defenders number one until the summer of 1988 when my friend was given the grocery sack full of comics. Still, I felt the need to mention how badly it stank. It had all sorts of behind the scenes drama like having to be rewritten after the fact to accommodate shrinking to two issues and an untried coloring process 
process saturating the page with Crayola subtlety. I mean, who looks at the delicate art of Judith Hunt and says, I see mech desert battles here. In a similar vein, we never got Ted McKeever's Silverhawks. That would have been something or other. I like the rest of the series so far. I remember Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars number 10 very well. Under that killer Mike Zek cover is a story to match. Doctor Doom flipped the script by challenging the quasi-deity the Beyonder, getting torn to ribbons with appropriately overwrought descriptive captions before emerging victorious and whole. If there was any doubt about the majesty of Doom in the mind of the Bronze Age reader, this dispelled it. As a young fan, I don't believe that I'd ever been confronted with a battle so grisly and seemingly full of consequence. I expect I had the same feeling of awe then that Dragon Ball fans got from watching martial arts battles that spanned seasons and destroyed worlds. As usual though, my experience was better because I got all that satisfaction in one sitting without cartoonish excesses that recalled Tex Avery. Why, of course my childhood foo is superior to your weak sauce lives otaku. Friday, a world movie premiere. Jack the Ripper is alive. Knight Rider's David Hasselhoff, Hunter's Stephanie Kramer, and one of history's most famous killers. He's out there. We gotta stop him. He's watching their every move, but together, they might survive. <sighs> Jack the Ripper has found a bridge across time. Friday. We're getting into fall TV season now, so let's take a brief look back at television in 1984. By this point, my mother and I were living with my stepfather, which altered our viewing habits. For instance, I find it odd that Fantasy Island was canceled in 1984, because thanks to syndication, it had a long life in the Houston market. However, on reflection, it occurs to me that I only ever watched it with my grandmother, so I wouldn't necessarily have missed it. Ditto heart to heart and one day at a time. Meanwhile, both Automan and Manimal were just the kind of trash I would have caught on my own, but they either left the airwaves before I'd settled into the new situation, or weren't as entertaining as their wacko premises would suggest. I do associate an episode of Manimal with buying the Mego War Heroes German U-Boat Commander action figure. I saw it at the apartment of a friend of our family, crossed the street, and bought it at the Walgreens. I'd never heard of a U-Boat, but I loved that figure so much that the term stuck with me forever. The blonde bearded figure became one of my absolute favorites, and I'm sure a superficial resemblance to Vance Dreadstar didn't hurt. I don't own any classic Mego superhero figures, since a temporary roommate stole the Green Arrow I managed to score cheap in 1991. So I'm not sure if the World War II figures were smaller, but they fit in well enough as taller, lankier, more flexible He-Man scale toys. I immediately lost the clothes and inevitably the thumbs plus a leg, but I still have that doll. In fact, I bought a second, better intact one at the only opportunity I've ever had. Got all his clothes, had, I think he even had some guns. Anyway, these figures inhabit this sort of limbo where they're pretty rare, but also not terribly sought after. One time I checked on eBay and the U-Boat Commander wasn't available, but several Minton cards from the series were up for 150 bucks. The Anzac Bushfighter is among them, which is just a brunette repaint with different clothes and accessories. On Sunday nights, I still caught the occasional Ripley's Believe It or Not, but there was a new show about an abandoned child living with Commander Lassard called Punky Brewster that I gravitated toward. I guess they were going for a stripped down, gender swap, different strokes, and it got big enough to have a cartoon spinoff. I'm sure I checked out Knight Rider in earlier seasons, and I have a vivid memory of watching it at the trailer one evening. I wonder if it was on the day I cut my foot open. It was a casualty of my dumpster diving barefoot, broken bottle, the sort of thing that's bound to happen to poor white trash, in the latchkey generation especially. Anyway, it wouldn't come out until the following year, but I also remember seeing David Hasselhoff in Bridge Across Time, an original NBC movie of the week. In real life, they'd moved one incarnation of the London Bridge, stone by stone, to Arizona, and the movie's premise was that the murderous spirit of Jack the Ripper came along with it. Some friends of ours from the bowling alley had shown us the 1979 film Time After Time on their newfangled video cassette recorder. It starred Malcolm McDowell, David Warner, and Mary Steenburgen, in which H.G. Wells' working time machine had allowed Jack the Ripper to escape capture to then-modern San 
Francisco. That movie made a huge impression on me, and it took years for me to divorce the stars from their roles in that one flick. Anyway, I couldn't help but associate the two movies, but David Hasselhoff remained Michael Knight to me. On Mondays, my viewing of Hardcastle and McCormick fell by the wayside in favor of TV's bloopers and practical jokes, a prank and outtake show hosted by Dick Clark and Ed McMahon. The stuff we wasted our time on pre-peak TV. I'd also occasionally try Kate and Alley, a sitcom about divorced mothers supporting one another starring Susan St. James and Jane Curtin. So yeah, pretty early on you could tell that I wasn't going to become a misogynist when I grew up. I watched a fair bit of Three's Company new and in syndication, but like America itself, my tolerance for Three's a crowd was very limited. I was more likely to skip it and come back to this new show called Who's the Boss, a half hour later on Tuesdays. I wish I could say I had a crush on Alyssa Milano or something, but really I was there for Tony Danza as a Mr. Mom type of nanny. That and Catherine Hellman as a sarcastic grandmother Mona was a hoot. My grandmother loved Michael Landon, so I know she watched him play an angel in Highway to Heaven religiously. That said, it was on Wednesday nights for most of its run, so I guess I was only around for summer reruns. And I didn't actually watch it with her. I guess I must have still been hanging on to the fall guy. Charles in Charge debuted against it, but I always thought Scott Bayo was a total schmuck, so I mostly recall it syndicated incarnation. Hey, the girls on the show were pretty cute, but I mostly just listened to the theme song before changing the channel. My mother was still watching Dynasty at this point, but I think I started to fade out on her. I was much more loyal on Thursday nights, from Magnum P.I. to Simon and Simon. Watching the detectives? Sometimes I'd even linger for Knott's Landing or 2020. Friday was the weekend, and I had stuff to do with my free time. If a television series of V couldn't hold me down, nothing could. Saturdays fared even worse. We were so in vice And I dance all days We were cool on Christ When I, you, and everyone we knew Could believe, do, sharing what was true I said Dance all days long November of 1984 began with G.I. Joe, a real American hero number 32. It had a Frank Springer cover and Frank Springer interiors, so it's a good thing it featured Zartan and Snake Eyes prominently, or else I'd have broken my streak of issues. Picking up from the cliffhanger of Snake Eyes apparently getting blown up with his mountain cabin couldn't have hurt. This one was also steeped in the lore of a middle American town fully populated by Cobra sleeper agents, which was the iconic Springfield to me before the Simpsons overtook it. It also had all that great Hitler use stuff with Major Blood and the Baroness grooming little bastard Billy to assassinate his father, Cobra Commander. Gee, I remember the good old days when comics were free from politics and not filled with Native Americans and Asians battling white supremacist terrorists or radical libertarian biker gangs going on destructive anti-government rampages. I got Fantastic Four number 275 out of a three-pack from a grocery or toy store. I can never get into the team, even under John Byrne, but this solo She-Hulk tale was a gas. A pornographer manages to photograph Jen Topless on top of the Baxter building, and the rest of the issue is Shulky attempting every means possible to prevent the picture's publication. The ending, especially from adult eyes, is bogus. But the journey is worth the trip. Still topical, too. Although the odds would be stacked that much more against our heroine. I have a modest affection to this day for the character based solely on this one good story. Sometimes that's all it takes. Kitty Pride and Wolverine number 4 involved Logan D. programming Kitty. Which in retrospect makes no sense. Dude has no memory. And is best known for trying to stab anyone who crosses him. Not the credentials for a master therapist. Not only did I buy Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number 9, 
1999. Despite not having been especially impressed with the previous writing or art, aside from one memorable issue, but this was even the debut of the much maligned villain Spot under the pen of Herb Trempy. The Spot was a rather Ditko-esque invention, and he has a nice visual power that made up for the dumb moniker. The next one was an extra size and extra expense anniversary issue. So whatever influence Al Milgram had on my buying habits, I finally left this title alone for the next year. Conqueror of the Barren Earth Number One was another book from out of the 88 grocery sack. While not as bad as Robotech Defenders, it still had weak art and coloring that looked like the previous owner had gone to town on it with a five and dime watercolor set. Despite the writing of Blue Devil co-creator Gary Cohn, they deserve to go right back into the sack. G.I. Joe Yearbook Number 1 reprinted the first issue of the regular series, which lacked the soap opera and outlandish characters to come, but benefited from Bob McCloud inking Herb Trimpey. It was a solid one-shot action yarn, and there were oodles of additional material to catch me up with the series and stars to date. I probably enjoyed this boldest feeding of information more than reading the individual comics. Finally, Jim Shooter continued the upward storytelling trajectory in Marvel Super Heroes Secret Wars Number 11. Subplots had been developed and began paying off. Doom was too cool, and the whole thing ended with Mike Zeck and John Beatty depicting our heroes massacred by a bolt from the blue. As for the movies, all of me was another dollar showing, this time with my parents. I have a bad tendency to take Lily Tomlin for granted, probably because she was so present in my childhood. In this, she's playing a sickly rich woman intent on transferring her spirit into the healthy body of Victoria Tennant. Her spirit instead lands in the body of her smarmy lawyer played by Steve Martin. The pair were unmissable in comedies of the day. Even though I haven't seen this in 36 years, I bet it'd hold up fine. Body Double wasn't my first taste of Brian De Palma. Owing to the fury and that big bloody carry laser disc cover they had at the Jimco, which, kidding aside about Chud, literally drove me out of that section of the department store when I'd spy it. I eventually saw Carrie on TV with my stepsisters, and I did like how, because they made me close my eyes ahead of the last scare, I got to hear them scream over it from the safety of my own palms. But speaking of Rosie Palms, Body Double was another cable recording from a few years later, but more than a cut above Bolero. The conceit of the movie is fairly ridiculous and warns of the self-parody to come, but I was more enthralled by the serpentine plot than Melanie Griffith's naked undulations. If you're able to forgive its more laughable twists and the idea of Craig Wasson fronting an erotic thriller, it's a little love to Palma worth checking out. The Terminator waited for video, I'm afraid. But you have to remember that it was a sleeper hit that lots of folks slept on until Arnold's career expanded beyond taciturn, muscled murderer machines. Likewise, Terror in the Isles sat on my shelf until probably television, but it made such an impression that I did rent it later on. It was a clip show of horror highlights hosted by Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen that heavily influenced my progression as a horror movie fan in the early going of my attempting to stop being such a wimp. Night of the Comet might have been a rental, but I'll always remember it best as one of the cheap licenses ABC affiliate KTRK Channel 13 played late night on weekends seemingly once per season. I adore this movie, and I will surely devote a whole podcast to it on its 40th anniversary in a few years, assuming that I'm not a pile of dated clothing and red dust by then. Night Patrol made less of an impression. A sad, stupid mashup of Police Academy, Zucker Brothers parody, and sex comedy, starring the alter ego of the unknown comic. For those blessedly unaware, he was a prop 
hip-hop comic who performed with a paper grocery sack over his head and devoted a lot of his set to paper bag-themed sight gags. The big names of the cast were Linda Blair and Billy Barty, and the most memorable joke involved the repeating of the phrase crap tonight being the secret weakness of the protagonist. Crap tonight! Crap tonight! Get it? I can't remember if I caught the first Beverly Hills Cop theatrically or not, but Eddie Murphy was the king of comedy, and this was a mega hit. I was already a fan from Saturday Night Live and Trading Places, but this was the flick that made him the biggest movie star in the world for the next few years. Poor Runaway and its near-future malfunctioning robot sci-fi had no chance against it, so that one definitely waited for cable or video. We instead saw Starman at the Dollar Show, a surprisingly sweet adult riff on E.T. They performed better financially than The Thing, but seems to be much less remembered by John Carpenter fans. I got Johnny Dangerously with Michael Keaton and Joe Piscopo in there somewhere. Probably Cable. The best I can say is it was inoffensive. Not even the Weird Al Yankovic theme song was memorable. My last trip to the Dollar Show in 1984 was my stepsister's choice. The movie. The myth. The legendary subtitle. Breaking 2. Electric Boogaloo. I hadn't seen the first one, so I wasn't all caught up with the lore of Breaking, but I managed to bolt through. After seeing the excellent documentary Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, I revisited the Breaking duology on Netflix. I'm not going to say that it was great, or even competent, but it was still amusing for what barely qualifies as a movie centered on a fading dance craze. My favorite was the number where the oversexed nurses get an entire hospital boogieing and performing acrobatics with their walkers. Part of the point of this series is to chronicle my reading of new comics in relatively chronological order, looking at the early books that shaped my tastes. I do tend to break here and there to cover books I read around the same time as the stated span of months, and occasionally years, if only to not seem like a total Marvel zombie, as well as to shake the monotony as I get old enough to stick to the same titles from month to month. For instance, I pulled Funny Stuff Stocking Stuffer number 1 out of a quarter box at the long-defunct Marauder Comics in 1989. I've skipped mentioning a lot of other series I collected from out of there, especially all those Grimjack issues, because it would bog things down and run contrary to spirit. Here though was a follow-up to a digest I had bought in my early days of collecting, and I think it's worth remarking on how completely disconnected I found myself from this type of material with five years removed. It meant absolutely nothing to me. Then again, this one was all one story by two writers, and the script was by Nice Guy, Bane author Paul Kupperberg that could have had an impact on the solar plexus of my potential enjoyment. Moving back to books published in December of 1984 that I actually purchased new, G.I. Joe Real American Hero number 33 had Cobra Commander's kid draw a gun on him in an assassination bid. Man, that touched a nerve. Billy was like the anti-Wesley Crusher, a kid who could not stop falling face forward into one sorry situation after another. We gutter rats related to him, so he was the rare exception to the Cousin Oliver rule. This issue was packed with comedy and drama that reminds you of why Larry Hama is not only still loved by the G.I. Joe fan base, but still employable in that capacity. When was the last new Chris Claremont X-Men or Marvel Wolfman Titan story that you read? I didn't buy Amazing Spider-Man number 262, but only because I never saw it on the newsstand. I loved photo covers and bought most on site. This was a one-off story about Peter Parker's secret identity being compromised, which happened often enough that the details escaped me. A copy of this was at a barber shop in the neighborhood where my father's family grew up, and I fixated on the cover more than the content I tossed through. 
Uncanny X-Men number 191 came out of a three-pack bought for this comic because I was sick of only ever getting to look at X-Men comics instead of reading them. Also, it was the best. The second part of the greatest non-what-if, what-if, involving Kulan Goth turning Manhattan Island back to the Hyborian Age, leaving Spider-Man, the X-Men, and the Avengers to play out a life more Conan. Spidey's bloody crucifixion alone was enough to sear the story into a young psyche. But there was so much more awesome to take in. I'm set adrift on memory bliss. Today, this would be a plotting months-long mega event, but as a two-parter, it was all killer, no filler. I didn't know John Romita Jr., or really any artist by name yet, but I definitely became an ignorant fan of the style with this issue. Oh my god. All flesh is grass messed me up. I don't know if I got the new Defenders number 141 off the newsstand or in a three-pack, but when the dude started sprouting vines out of his tongue, that was like laying the groundwork for a lot of the disturbing anime I had yet to be exposed to. I'd argue that Peter B. Gillis and Don Perlin were better suited to horror than superheroics, but combining both suits me just fine. The cover was Mike Mignola inked by Kevin Nolan, so it's already one right there. Kitty Pride and Wolverine number five saw the heroine finally coming into her own in the new identity, still ill-costumed, of Shadowcat. Look, I don't know why Marvel backed away from the Shadowcat branding, but this will always be her endgame for me. Confronting Ogun, she was totally out of her depth, and Wolverine got his ass kicked besides, which made for good drama. A lot of fanboys slammed this miniseries over the years because Al Milgram isn't Frank Miller, but if you can get past that, I much prefer the story Chris Claremont was telling here. Marvel Superhero Secret Wars number 12 was appropriately epic, as the remains of the Beyonder acting through Claw planted the seed of doubt and doom subconscious, which allowed for the resurrection of Earth's heroes. It was double-sized fun with some classic moments, like Cap Fear alien science can't repair his shattered shield. I think guys like Art Adams and Jim Starlin did some uncredited fill-in work, which was neat but super noticeable. Having gotten enough of a kick out of the Hammer Horror issue, I jumped right back into the thing number 22, the last with Ben Grimm on Beyonder World. It was a sad story that had me interested in more, but the rest of the series was nothing but stupid villains, the justifiably forgotten second Miss Marvel, and attempts to cash in on the wrestling fad. Count me out. got social media mobility from 64-page special, Adam Potter, Alan Middleton, Dr. Ange. Between the pages, Chris at Bad Books for Beginners, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Comic Book Couples Counseling, Del Dracula, Doc Strange, Ed Moore, Firestorm Fan, Generation Hicks, who felt needs more DC, History of Comics on Film, I Was Joe Is, The Irredeemable Shag, Jeffrey Brown, They, Them, Keith G. Baker, Cindy Aliens to Me, who noted, I've read the Blue Devil one, but other than that, my resume is lacking on these comics. Portugoth, Randy Caldwell, Ryan Daly, Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, who declared, the Rocky Grimm Space Ranger arc is really fun. Siskoid, who noted, I bought all of these comics fresh. Slangward Scott, who offered, six for six for me, but only Blue Devil bought new. The others I got a few weeks or months later as my comic buying started ramping up. Sleeve McDykel, Superbound, Tim Price, the Podcrasher, who added, the only one I haven't read is The Thing number 19, although Thing is on my Marvel Unlimited reading list at some point. 
Of the five I've read, four were new from the Spinner Rack. Tom Beach, Warlock, Thanos Podcast, who observed, I haven't read the Blue Devil or Thing issues, but otherwise yes on all the others. Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Finally, Jeffrey Brown Opine. Secret Wars 8 is the debut of the alien costume, Venom. I remember when I found this as a collectible. In the PS1 game, it was my first time seeing that iconic cover. And Alpha Flight is pretty cool, and that Uncanny X-Men annual, I really like the art. Searching my mind some truths to reveal what thoughts are fantasy